When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, this is Andy Hull from Manchester Orchestra, and this is the LSQ Podcast. Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Andy Hull, my old friend. Hi. I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good. It's good to see you. Too. I'm not I'm not even finished with this large latte yet, but already getting getting fight. We were before we opened the microphones, you should have heard us. We were getting feisty. <laughs> we were. Um, uh, but welcome to the show, and so great to see you. And I'll say at the outset that you and I go way back because uh, we were we were fact checking ourselves about this in another recent interview. Yeah. Was was my, was our interview together the first? It was the first national interview. Yes, my first and first national magazine coverage of any kind was. We were in the Rolling Stone ten artists to watch of two thousand and either six or seven, but I think it was two thousand six. I mean, it was yeah. it was right when we were starting. And what's funny is the studio that we operate out of every day now is where we used to live, and we had gutted it and turned it into our place. But I did that interview with you in the driveway of that studio, so I passed by that little spot every day. Oh wow! And uh, lifelong thanks to our to our dude Steve Rabowski who introduced yeah. us and who signed Manchester Orchestra to Canvas back way back then and was the reason that I was able to be early to discovering y'all. Um, I was just talking to him yesterday, so actually. We are doing a song with one of his artists, Briston Maroney. He's great. Oh, yeah, dude. great. Um, yeah, singer-songwriter from Nashville. Yeah, he's awesome. Um, and so, yeah, Steve's kind of... It's funny now, all these years later, I'm sort of like the guy who's been around and I can sort of help these younger artists with, you know, even just advice or perspective, you know, because... The music industry is insane, and it's really insane when you're 19. You have no idea. Well, what's yeah, because how old were you? How old were you? You were you were barely out of high school when yeah. we met, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, I was 19, I think, maybe freshly 19, which is an, another very fascinating thing. So many of our people in our band were younger than me too. We only had one guy older than me, so those first few years touring as underage artist was very hard as well because a lot of places you know they would like kick you out after you play because you're not 21 and you can't be in the bar and I mean is and you're are you in the the house that became the studio now is no, that where you're this is my to? home that's this is your yeah, home down the road right. from regardless 
regardless where where you find yourself now in this yes. moment specifically or more generally i mean is it even remotely sort of what you imagined back then when it was starting to happen and it felt like you were going to get a chance to play in a band for real and yeah. do some of the stuff that people do i mean is where you are now remotely what you imagined it it might be like it's in a lot of ways it's so much more than what i thought i mean i was always like a big dreamer like I, I still have the same goal like my goal was never to be the biggest band in the world but I wanted to be the greatest band in the world and that's what we wanted to strive to to be and so like in a sense you know I knew I would take it seriously every time that we would make a record and try and top ourselves but I never I didn't my big goal though was always like if I could have a hundred people in every city and just me and an acoustic guitar then I think that I would actually feel fulfillment you know because that means there's like a following there and I don't need to live a life that's, you know, I save my money instead of spending my money. So it wouldn't be something that would be, you know, weird for me. And then the fact that I can go tour and, you know, do a thousand people solo in a thing is that's mind blowing to me. And I think just some of the avenues with scoring and songwriting and, and the industry side of things and working with bands and artists, that's something that I didn't really anticipate happening and it's made the whole thing so much more enjoyable than just being in a band. Yeah, totally. I mean, and also it's just like at 18, 19, you know, it's, it's, you know, who could see the full scope of, of possibilities at that point. And it's funny because, uh, you know, this, on this show, the, you know, the interview itself, I always ask people, you know, some of the same kinds of questions looking back at their earliest mm -hmm. experiences, like feeling creative. Um, and, and, uh, you know, thinking about when I first met you and we first had a, a conversation about, you know, this proverbial your influences kind of thing. You were so close to them then. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm older than you, and but I was also much younger then. <laughs> As time goes. <laughs> you know, you don't, you sort of, you're just like, you know, it feels like you've made up your mind what you're doing while you're doing it. And then, you know, you, many years pass and you're like, oh, I don't, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I just no. had some vague sense of, of what. And you're trying it to identify be. a sound. I mean, you know, there's the earliest stuff, I think, for any artist is them trying to copy other artists and trying to, oh, I like this thing. You know, for us, it would be like Death Cab was a band that, or Modest Mouse were two bands I thought were both on kind of, they were similar, but they were opposite. Like the Modest Mouse had the danger and the scream and the the unsteadiness and Death Cab had like the sleek and the shine and the the smartness of that stuff. So... You know, I'll listen to our early, early stuff, and I'm like, gosh, I wanted to be Ben Gibbard so badly. And, you know, doing records that young, too, like my voice hadn't changed yet. I just had a different voice. I was still in that weird post-puberty, you know, like I'm sure the cigarettes, all the, the years that followed didn't help. But, um, yeah, you're, you're, you're sort of a product of a lot of sounds trying to identify your own sound. And it was always surprising to me when our first record really hit for people the way it did, because I just, I knew I hadn't quite found my sound yet, you know, or what we were. Well, I don't know, I, I'm, but I'm going to have to beg to differ totally, a little bit yeah. as like a fan and listener, because, you know, it's there, it's the, it's, you know, it's just the younger, smaller version of the thing yeah. or something, you know. And, uh, well, let's, let's go back even further sure. than that, Andy. <laughs> let's take ourselves back to baby, baby Andy. Okay, baby Andy. Um, what, what were the, what was the first music you heard that like hit you in a meaningful way? And, and where were you at the time? Well, I do think there's this weird thing that my mom 
played classical music for me as I was going to bed ever since I was a kid. So I'd have like these tapes of Chopin and um, all the kind of classics. Um, and I don't know why she started doing it. Maybe it was like just a way that would soothe me when I was asleep. But I think I, there's something I think that like knocked something loose in there um, that I liked picking out. Apparently, I really liked picking out what instruments were in you know, the songs. And so I go, Oh, cool. There's that thing. And Oh, there's that thing. And so, you know, we, we weren't totally allowed to listen to, Oboe. <laughs> we weren't allowed to listen to really secular music other than oldies because my dad was a pastor. My mom, you know, they were really kind of much more open and, and chill people today, but they were, you know, it was tight knit and it was Southern, the South and, and, you know, being in the church and stuff. So there was a slight, um, that's all I wanted to hear was the stuff I wasn't allowed to hear, you know? So it was like trying to figure out yeah. how I can like, I don't know if you ever heard of this back in church, they would have these charts that would have on the left side, all of the secular, or, yeah, secular bands on the left. And on the top, they would have another row of secular bands. And if you followed those two and met in the middle, it would tell you what the Christian band version of that would be. So, oh, my God. So you go like, all right, Green Day and the Beatles. Well, that's MXPX. <laughs> I need this chart. I do, that's too. Amazing. I need to look up this chart. I haven't even that's thought about incredible. that. That's incredible. Also, I'm curious... As a kid, like, okay, if you're a kid who doesn't have this uh, situation in your family where there's rules about what mm-hmm. what categories of music you can listen to, you don't even know what the word secular means, right? Right. You don't even know. No, no, You've no. never heard of that word. Not. That's like a college-level word or something. Totally. I knew what secular um, meant when I was like four. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Where it's like, what was your understanding as a child, as far as you remember, of why you couldn't listen to, quote-unquote, secular music? Mm-hmm. Or how was it... What do you remember having been explained to you about, like, why the Beatles are bad, yeah. but MXPX is okay? Yeah, there's a great, I think one of the final kind of me and my dad breaking through in our relationship of me going, man, you're not looking at art the way you should look at art. You know, I was 15, and we're having an argument about the Beatles, and he's going, Time Magazine said it's drenched in drugs. And I'm like, you are insane. Like, if we believe in God, then we believe God created the Beatles, and God's stoked about the Beatles. What are we talking about? Um, so I remember- God is definitely stoked about the Beatles. Of course he is. I mean, I don't want to live is. in a world where God is not stoked about the Beatles. Of course they are. Um, so I remember, though, for my mom, it was the worldview. That was a big one. Like, their, the, this band's worldview. And for some of that stuff, she's right. Like, I don't think I probably should have been listening to, you know, 36 Chambers at 10 years old. There's some validity to that. Um, And it opened up big time as I became like, you know, a preteen into a teen. And there wasn't any of that weird stuff like in high school where I wasn't allowed to listen to things. Um, But it just gave me this, you know, fourth, fifth and sixth grade is when really cool music was starting to come out, like just post Nirvana. So there's these really interesting, you know, it's Foo Fighters, like Color and the Shapes coming out. And oh, yeah. I lived in Canada, so like Our Lady Peace, Clumsy had come out, which is also a really classic album. Um, and I would just steal my friends, t- you know, CDs or to borrow them and take them home to the to my mixer and my, you know, the boombox that had the tape and the CD, and you could record what was on the CD to the tape. So I was just doing all these like hijacked versions of these records and listening to them in quiet and studying them. You owe Our Lady Peace a couple of dollars. I do. I, mean, I, just no, I do. I love it. It's a shout out. Our Lady Peace, man. Underrated. 
<laughs> and it's, and yet they're called Our Lady Peace, and yet they're still secular. See, kids, Somehow. there's no rhyme or there's no rhyme or reason to that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I guess it's good because even though you probably would have connected with that music anyway, uh, having it be a kind of forbidden zone must have made you cherish it, you know, even more. I'm sure you would, didn't think you were going to get in trouble or anything no. for listening to it liter in any literal way, but it felt it felt dangerous. And when did you start to connect that with the idea that you would also play music? Well, I, you know, I tried playing guitar. My grandmother's classically trained um, piano player and my grandfather was in a, my grandfather and grandmother made like 30 records together in this gospel trio called the Joymakers. Um, and so I, wow. I knew there was, it was in me, you know, because I was musical and I started to figure out harmony pretty early. Like I would listen to records in like sixth, seventh, eighth grade and start to figure out, oh, I know what the one above this and the one above that sounds like. I had no way to record that and like experiment with that yet. Um, but still, that's such a massive part of our, our sound now is like hearing all those harmonies. Um, so anyways, it didn't stick for me trying piano and trying guitar. And then I met this guitar teacher in the eighth grade named Nathan Woody. And he said, I said, I just want to learn how to play Stairway to Heaven. And he said, well, do you want to learn it like the hard way or the easy way? And I said, well, clearly I want to hear it the easy way, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so he said, okay, well, we won't worry about theory then. Let's just like get you the tools to, so that you can start to write some songs. And then, then once I put together what the power chord was and I f realized I could move it all of, around the neck and sing whatever I wanted to on top of it, then the floodgates were sort of open. And I've really literally been like writing songs consistently since then, since I was like 15, 14 or 15. So, yeah, so immediately it wasn't it was the the playing of the guitar was in service of playing your own songs pretty, pretty much right away. Yeah, absolutely. And learning other band songs the easiest way possible, you know, like being able to right. go to like a tab site. And instead of looking up, there's two different types. You can look up like the tabs that tell you all the technical places that you play it or you can just look for the chords. And I was a big chords guy. It's like, tell me what I need to play so I can sing it. Nice, nice. And so were there any, were there shows or anything yeah. around to start going to? And then other, did other kids have bands? Yeah. So we, I started my first band would have been my sophomore year of high school after ninth grade had spent a lot of time just like writing and trying to figure it out. And I, I had, I was friends with older guys. Um, so if I was like a ninth or 10th grade, I was friends with the guys that were seniors and and would, you know, be going to college. So that was a path into shows for sure. I mean, I was going to see an unbelievable time in music. It was like The Strokes, Kings of Leon, and Regina Spector at the Tabernacle. Wow, yes. You know? Steve Rabowski, a Steve Rabowski bill. So then think about that way. in my brain, right? So I'm 16 <laughs> and that's happening. And then three years later, that guy who signed all of those artists, you know, it's like, we really believe in you. I was like, oh, fuck yeah. off. I believe in what? Well, nice. you know, I'm nothing... Um, and where was the, what was where were you going to see shows? What was the venue? What was that you were near Atlanta? Yeah, so it was Tabernacle was that show, but they had so many cool weird venues. They still do, but like the Earl, the Masquerade, um, Cotton Club was this really cool club underneath the Tabernacle that shut down a long time ago. But that was a place where you're like six hundred to a thousand cap, sweaty basement shows, kind of stuff. Variety Playhouse. One week I saw my junior year, maybe my senior year of high school. I saw. Mars Volta, like on a Monday this, at, at Tabernacle, The Shins on a Wednesday, and then Built to Spill on a Friday. It's just like 
I couldn't get enough of it, you know? And I was just wow. studying, just going there and studying. Man, what a time for indie rock that was, the early aughts. It was unbelievable. Hello. I mean, just so Hello much great, great talent happening, you know? And so how was your songwriting developing during that time? Um, and, uh, you know, what are some of the ways that you feel like it's it's grown or changed the most? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think there's something about your... I heard Dave Bazan talk about it once, talking about old Page of the Lion records, but that he would hear something and it's almost like your subconscious wrote it. Like, you you know, you're in there trying to make a sound, but you don't realize you're actually doing something that's much smarter than you realize that you're doing. And you can listen back to it and go, oh, that's really clever. I had no idea that was clever, but, you know, um, sort of like the White Stripes tune about, you know, moving out of the little room. Sometimes it's good to just go back and remember what was so kind of easy about it. Um, they were just flying out of me at a certain point. Like I was just staying up a, a, a certain nights and would write a record. And, you know, I think by the time I was 18 or 19, I was getting close to like 300, 400 songs that I'd written. Whoa. And most of them are That's really crazy. bad, you know, and they're on hard drives that, and I'm not being hard on myself. They're just, they sound like someone trying to figure out who they are, what their sound is, you know. If, if I emulate this a little, if this is weird, if I can, I try this. I'm trying to be a better guitar what player. What was the what was the goal at that point? I, I don't know, really. I mean, I think just loving that I was building up this catalog, and it was cool for me to go. Cool, I just did eight solo albums that no one's heard, but you know, and you name them and you sequence them, and it was just something that um, kept me entertained and and hungry because it wasn't easy to just go into a studio with no money <laughs> and no one that wants to record you, you know, right. so garage band had just come out. And so Robert McDowell, um, who's always like three years younger than me, but so much smarter, he set me up this little like interface and I could have a little studio in my room and that's how, how it started. But there must also have just been some kind of emotional need for sure. Yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the mix there. I mean, and also just, you know, knowing you know what some of those early songs were about or what you were grappling with in them did did you feel like uh yeah did you feel like a call to do it uh out of a out of an emotional need and and um what kinds of things were you interested in writing about then well i think around i'm like a virgin you know it's all, it's the same shit i write about now it's just through a different lens i guess but you know the idea of pushing back against things that um, you find hypocritical and um, asking kind of the questions that are difficult to to ask. Um, grappling with the relationship with God was a big one. You know, it's like, man, I'm coming into this world and I'm starting to have some real thoughts of my own. And how do those align with this thing that I've been told? <clears throat> so there was a lot of that. There was love. I was deeply in love with my girlfriend now wife at that time and she was this huge inspiration for me so i could write these inspired by her songs that were really deep and and and, and wide in their context and um you know I, I look back at that record and i'm so happy that we made it and i really love all the songs on it it is a little difficult to hear like how i sound a bit just because i'm so young but um it's cool that there was a through line even at that point that I wanted to make records that were cohesive 
and and connected um but yeah that that record's all about god and death and sex hadn't really started to play into it yet so that comes later yeah yeah i mean what since then you know zooming out a kind of wider uh, a bit what would you say are some key moments in, of evolution in your approach to songwriting or realizations about what you were doing that was good that you needed to mm-hmm. to take care of and mind and, and or or what was just a distraction and, and could be gotten rid of etc yeah well i think the evolution of that goes to playing so many shows so we make that first record and then we're playing shows with rock bands you know like going on tour with kings of leon and black rebel and brand new who you know at that time was an extremely loud aggressive rock show great show um and we felt the need it was like okay we can't we, we got to step it up so like the next record needs to be extremely in your face like we need to take the inspiration we have from records like in utero and, and pinkerton and like prove to ourselves and to everyone else that we're a legitimate rock band and we can make legitimate music and we love that first record but this is something different we're not trying to do that thing again and once that happened and it felt successful to us then the idea was sort of a version of that forever. Okay, well, don't get too comfortable because we're not just going to be this loud rock band. We also want to figure out how to like spread our wings and kind of get weirder. And, you know, as you start to build a catalog, all this records start to kind of play off of each other in what I call like that phase one period of Manchester with the first four records. Um, they kind of all bounce off of each other and our like reactions and to each other. I think my my songwriting has taken, it's gotten better, but it's because I take longer doing it. There are still some songs that can fly out, but I was talking to Julian Baker the other day, and she, we, we were saying, you know, sometimes a song takes 15 minutes to write, and it's one of your best songs, and sometimes they take seven years to write them, and it can, and neither of them are any better than the other, but for me, just I've slowed down in that sense, and I kind of, I take my time with a song now if I really like what's there I don't try and rush it too fast yeah Regina Spector speaking of her has an analogy about um songs that uh every time she's working on a new thing she (laughs) I love her visual sense but she it's like she has this island of song ideas sort of like the island of misfits misfit toys or whatever and she she gets in a rowboat and she goes out there and she's only got room for so many of them this time so she rescues some of them (laughs) and some of them are from just a month ago or for a year ago or 10 years ago and then they get in the boat and she brings them back to the mainland basically um and that's all she's got it's like sorry i'll get you next time i don't i only have room for so many it's like that with track listing when you're trying to really you know get a record you've you've recorded a handful of songs and now you have to figure out how they all work together and Catherine marks our collaborator says you know all the kids can't go to college (laughs) gotta (laughs) just gotta let that one go somebody's gonna have to work the property work the farm you know exactly yeah we can't can't all make it i'm sorry work the land we might get around to you next time we're not sure um i do think there's my analogy is always these two like buckets and one of the buckets is experiences and the other bucket is is like writing and and songs and so you have to wait i used to think it was 
writer's block and it scared me after every record we make i'm like i haven't written anything in months i think this might be it i'm totally out but you just have to live and then as those experiences fill up in one bucket then you can dump that bucket into some songs and actually have a fresh perspective to write about yeah and i mean i would imagine i'm sure it's different for everyone but the need you know if you're going to be creative then their procrastination and is built into it and and being in control of your own procrastination and not letting that start to feel like uh, a block where you're just like, no, I'm, I'm, you know, it, it's, there's no, you, there's only the rules you make for yourself right. about how the sausage gets made, That's right. you know, and it's like no one else, need, no one else knows or needs to know. I mean, people like me will ask you, well, how do you do it? And what did you do? Yeah. How did you do it this time or whatever? But the idea that in between releases is some that that's a specific amount of time that is supposed to pass. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, they make you feel that way, the world, yep. because um, it's always referring to something as their first album since 2019, as if that's like, where have they been since then or something? Their first, <laughs> it's a, a, you know, and just for the listeners to know, a lot of that is, is truly what you might think, which is clickbait, SEO nonsense you know some of that harping on using referencing the last album within a sentence like that yeah. is to help with searchability and so but it, it, it all <laughs> she's talking it all truth here people <laughs> it all makes you feel like you're just like wow they haven't had an album since 2018 you're like uh that was three years ago that's yesterday <laughs> in take creative time, time. <laughs> I heard a great quote from J. Cole. I was watching his documentary about his record, and he was saying, you know, I was really comfortable, and so it's easy to procrastinate when you're comfortable. I like have a great house and a family, and I'm, I'm happy. But he started to relate it to sports, where he's like, you can't, you know, a lot of people go, I'll just wait for the inspiration to come. But if you do that, there is a chance that it won't ever come back. And you just sort of, at a certain point, need to start getting some reps up and, like, go out there and take a bunch of shots. That's the only way you're going to get better. So... I've tried to do that a lot, like always creating in between records, making tons of songs, even if I don't really know what they are, you know, or if they're good. Yeah, yeah, tr- truly right, because it is a it is a muscle is. too that you have to keep stretching and, and flexing. So, what do you when you're? What is the practice sort of nowadays when you're not uh, working toward anything in particular, but you're trying to keep it fresh? Yeah, it's either working with other artists that will come in and, and work with and write with covers for no one but us you know we just take a song that we really love and 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 try and reimagine it and work it and learn it something that's difficult um and and not super easy to do um and then just you know we're all nerds in the studio so just creating songs and sounds that don't even need to have words or melody to them just working on things is really are you exciting. talking about jamming? It's a, a version of jamming. I think it's become like. Is that what's known as jamming? It's more technical, or no, it's more electronic <laughs> jamming. Okay. <laughs> we're, we're all in the same room, but we're not all playing something at the same time. Uh, we don't call it jamming. I love a jam. Don't get me wrong. I'm f- fully for jam. Like I said, I'm a built to spill fan. Please jam. <laughs> um, but I, you know, sometimes there'll be you know an artist that asks us for some songs, so. You know, at Logic, um, who I worked with last year and I'm actually heading to work with next week, he would say, you know, bring me up five songs that you guys have laying around and and, and the stems and then we'll see if we want to mess with them there. So that gives us just a creative ability to go, all right, whatever, let's make five songs. And if those guys like the snare drum of one of those songs, 
then cool, you know, they can sample it and, and more art can be created. So, yeah, I think it's like you said, it's like keeping the, the muscle stretched. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, when did the idea, you know, you talk about those first four albums versus these last couple, and obviously this overlaps with the era of starting to do score yep. work. Yeah. Tell me a bit about how that how that began to happen and, and kind of how it's changed your um, your outlook on on what your songwriting can be. Yeah. So, you know, we do cope and we do hope, which is our fourth record. And we're, we recorded these two versions alongside each other of the same record but but recorded with like opposite instrumentations super loud and super quiet once we did that we're like okay we literally have no more ideas of what we can do as a band because like we did the big like string sweeping epic thing with simple math we did the kind of hybrid rock opera thing with mean everything to nothing and then cope was like a punk rock record and hopes this really pretty folk record so I, i couldn't see the forest for the trees like it just felt like I'd exhausted all my resources and I didn't really want to start making a Manchester record for a long time because I needed to fill up that experience bucket. And we got a call from the Daniels, the directing team, to if, if they were interested in me writing some songs for this movie that they were working on that had been in the Sundance Labs. And I read the script and wrote a song that night, sent it to them, and they're like, this is the single most um, you know, important addition to this film that we've had since we finished writing it do you guys do you want to they didn't really know that rob and i work as a team and that was the beginning too of me and rob getting into this more of a a, a duo mentality um they said do you want to work on it really one of those crossroads moments they're like i remember my manager saying you have two options you can do kind of help them select music for the movie and like do some things but someone else can kind of put it all together or you can be the composer for the movie and I'm like well, I gotta try the composer thing right <laughs> what's the worst that can happen I fail at it okay so I just took the leap on that and that started a 13 month process of writing for that movie and that song that I sent them is still it is the credits that version is what rolls during the credits and the melody of that song is the melody for the movie the movie is sort of a musical so those guys really believed in us and helped us and pushed us and there were so many things we did incredibly well and they would say yeah, it's just too pretty like you have to make it sound worse like maybe get drunk and try it like we need this to kind of suck and me and rob are like uh like all we do is make what we think is kind of like perfectly crafted you know these we really care about every single little thing and the fact that something would be out of tune was mind-blowing to us why why and we started to understand why because it was more interesting and bigger didn't necessarily mean and for people those who are listening this movie is 95 percent just my vocals Daniel Radcliffe's vocals and Paul Dano's vocals it's an entirely acapella soundtrack so that was an interesting um you know part of it as well that we were challenged with that don't use any instruments but we started to realize oh you know 50 voices sounds like you're walking into you know the gates of heaven and two voices kind of rough gives you this whole other texture and oh it's doing something to picture way different than if it was really glorious so so much trial and error so much stuff that we would make and they'd say this is incredible, you know, but we, it just doesn't work with the scene. You're like, okay, you know, I'll try and figure that out. And then the other big part of it was 
learning that like seven seconds of time can create a really interesting emotion if you have elements that are working against each other and with each other. And that, it could be one thing. It could be a voice just dipping. Um, it could be like a chirp. It can be anything. That it, and When we started to realize that and it was affecting these scenes so heavily, we're like, man, we have to do this with our records. We have to consider like the seven-second sections that maybe we would just do something normally that would be like an outro or, you know, we just wouldn't think about that particular part of the production. And it seeped in massively. And as we then started making the soundtrack, we're putting all of these bits that we've done. I think we did 90 minutes of music for it. But we were going to get it down to like 50 for the soundtrack. And making that one piece, if you listen to that score, it's all connected. It's all in the same key. It's a very like meditative experience. We're like, oh, we have to do that too. How do we, how do we create a record like that that's truly all connected and thought out and plays on itself and the themes keep reoccurring, you know, the way that they wouldn't in a movie. So it kind of blew our minds slowly over a 13-month process that when it came time to make Black Mile, we just had a different set of, school, uh, set of tools. And you have continued working on projects like that mm-hmm. since then. Yes. Yeah, that, that opened up a really cool world for me and Rob in commercials. We did a Netflix commercial last year, and we've done some like bizarro um, European overseas stuff for like, you know, like a hardware store or something that you know, takes me and Rob a day or two and we get to make something that's outside the box. Um, and that song from Swiss Army Man, we always joke about it. But it's like, you know, we didn't make any money on Swiss Army Man. What we were paid to make that was like 13 months and what we were actually paid is like hilarious. But that song has been picked up by so many different it was like ebay's campaign song for two years we're like holy shit you know and luckily we own <laughs> that song and it's like well this is great <laughs> you know talking about the idea that someone would you know as manchester orchestra became more known but you know have a larger audience that people who get what you're doing and who are creating their own things would reach out and ask you to do some of what you do for them Mm -hmm. i mean have you come to any conclusions about what it is that they think is what you do (laughs) great question what do you what do i think they think i do what what do you think they think you do or what do you or what do you think is the thing it's weird it's hard to be to look at what you're doing that way or what is that thing i do as the movie goes you know what is that thing that i do that makes people seem to tell me they they want me to do it for them well i mean i think there's probably two things that one of them would be my voice. I think people like would want my voice to have a pretty versatile voice, so I can do background vocals in a way that's not like taking, you know, like oh god, there's Andy, you know, like trying to steal the show. Like I have a good way of kind of blanketing myself in and and, and being there. And I I think that's something some people look for. Some people want my voice as like a, a feature. The thing I think I'm best at is shaping a song and taking elements of a song and realizing really quickly how we can arrange that in a way that takes the song to another level. Um, it's much easier for me to do that with other people's songs than it is for my songs. It's, it takes me a long time to to decide, you know, whether or not we can just flip this bridge or write a new part. When I'm working with another artist, it's almost like that. I, I feel free. So I, I all of a sudden know what the chorus should be and know how many times we should do this. And Rob is super dialed into that as well um but he's almost like the sonic brain that then can take these ideas and you know i can paint a picture with my words and he can then help that thing sound that way um 
So yeah, I think that's probably the main reason. Like I've got good ideas. <laughs> yeah, and but in a in a in the in a more meta sense, like what do you think is the feeling that your song gives people? Mm. Your songs give people. Well, I've heard it's like spiritual for sure. I think there's a, a, a connection. People have told me that they feel like when they see us play, they feel like it's some like weirdo church, um, which is cool because it's just about the community of that. It's a bunch of people who like the same thing and and they're they're all agreeing with each other loudly. Um, I don't really know, to be honest. I don't look at myself that way. I think I do know I'm supposed to be doing this. I've not been given any signs from the universe to stop doing it. I've certainly been given signs to get better and and try and grow as a person and and just mature and you know take not to take all of this for granted. Um, but I don't know. It's it's still a, quite a confusing thing to me where people can feel so deeply connected to it. But I'm grateful for that. You know, it's sort of outside of my control. Do you do you tend to find that the songs that um, audiences connect to the most are are the ones that felt the most? Uh, you know, resonant to you as they were happening? It can be that way at times. There's certainly moments where I know a line. I'm like, oh man, if the lyrics making me feel a certain way and I wrote it and it's like emotional for me to even be able to sing it, that's generally a pretty good sign that like it's going to connect with people. But I can also be really surprised, you know, that song that did really well on our last record, The Gold. I love that song, but that wasn't a song that like deeply, you know, as compared to other songs on the record, that wasn't one that made me kind of go introspective and super deep and connected. You know, it felt like a really clever pop song, but then that connected deeply with people. So it's cool to let it out and let people decide what, what, it, you know, and what they like. And we're never going to like cater to try and do that thing, but it's cool to watch it, you know, connect. Yeah. I mean, I always just think it's like the, being mindful of what you're feeling when you're doing the thing, you know, as like a signal of a meaningful signal of some kind where you're like, why do I always feel that when I do that? Maybe I should, as I get older, that's what I try and pay attention to where I'm like the things that give you anxiety that you keep doing again and again, like where you're just like, wait, let's just pause. I know what that feels Mm -hmm. like. And I know when I feel it, I did that thing. Mm -hmm. So maybe I should not do it or do it. you know the same the same thing that we deprive ourselves of things we know make us feel good because we're busy with other stuff but we don't take the time to we know we feel good when we go for a walk or whatever yeah. it might be but we just think oh it's okay i don't need that it's like no do the things that feel good you know not and to allow yourself about, to enjoy but... them when you're doing them you know there's there's a big rumor that's happened forever with music that's like you have to be tortured in order to make something that's significant and you have to be tortured in the process and the whole thing has to just be, you know, like awful. And that has made some of the greatest records of all time. There's also been records that have made in peace and, you know, in solidarity with a bunch of musicians that people had a great time making that are also that thing. I heard Tom York talking about that like five years ago on some weird interview. And he said that's when it turned for him was there was some record where they had finished it and he decided he was going to enjoy the process of making an album. And he's like, and then once you went into that mindset, then it's actually fun because you're going, oh, right, I get to make music for a living. This is this is a good thing, you know. So I was influenced by that. I try to do that now. Yeah, and 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 we are in a, in a business that doesn't that doesn't take enough care 
uh, of its artists who were genuinely tortured, and it, it, it enables them to remain in that state because of that myth. Yeah, especially if you've got people working on your team that don't that are, that your well being isn't the most important. Because that's where yeah. you get into trouble. Because there's always one more show you can do. There's always one more press thing. There's always one more thing you can fit in there. And you got to know when to say no. Because it, do- it doesn't surprise me one bit that people go nuts their first couple years in this industry because you don't know how to set your boundaries. You don't know, you know, that why would I say no to this? It's a great opportunity. Everybody's telling me to do it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, combined with the lifestyle and the traveling it's like man it's a, it's a dangerous thing yeah you know you were mentioning earlier briston maroney and you talked about talking to julian baker both of whom are obviously younger yeah. artists than you um and you you are kind of like not just because the beard <laughs> guru <laughs> we have a guruistic um quality and you know no, and staying. even though i've known you since you're you know 19 years old yeah you are you you are uh a, a mature and wise kind of guy for your years um so it's not surprising that younger artists would take comfort in consulting you or, or seeking your advice or whatever um I'm, I'm curious just sort of what you know yeah you know, what key pieces of wisdom you try to impart if you know if someone a younger artist wants to have a conversation about about how you've dealt with the, the pressures of, of being right. a public artist well, the first one is it's totally normal that you're feeling the way that you're feeling. That's the biggest one. You know, like if, if someone, um, I'll use an example that's not one of them so they don't think I'm talking about them. But um, I was having a conversation with someone where they were having a really hard time making a record. And the producer wasn't getting what they were doing. And the label didn't seem to get what they were doing. And they had really convinced themselves that this was super unique to their situation and it shouldn't be this way because this is the first time we're making this kind of record and it's like, it's this is it's prime time. Like, I'm supposed to be having the time of my life making this record. And I'm like, oh no, dude, you know. It's, <laughs> it's been miserable <laughs> for me until last year. Like, <laughs> it's okay. This is a, it's a process. You know, making an album is a process. And so that's a whole that's a whole type of psychosis that happens when you're making a record. You, sometimes you just need to cry, and <laughs> that's okay, too. And you'll go like, all right, I'm better now, because um, it just takes so long. And if you feel like your vision isn't being heard, you can get really, really wounded in there and, and sort of subtract into yourself. Um, and the touring side of it, I remember talking to uh, Matt Mason, who's such a really great singer-songwriter, and he was in the middle of a radio tour, and he, he was like, man, I just, I lose the, 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 the plot. I lose the purpose in it when it's all so stacked together. And that's about like, you gotta, you, you must investigate the drone view of your life. It is very important in those moments to like take a breath, go up a couple thousand feet, look at what's actually happening around you and take it day by day, you know, cause it is a blessing. You need to keep your brain in, in the fact that like, we're really lucky that we are able to do this there's a whole lot of shit we have to do surrounding it that's not very fun but it's a part of the job and it's like you know it's essentially a trade-off if you want a job as being an artist and you also want to sell that art in some capacity you have to play some game you know yeah, it's it's can be easy and and you know this sort of connects to what we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation before we even were rolling about COVID and choosing to keep doing things but adapting to doing them differently. You know, it's at any point you could just pause and be like, why am I even doing this? Maybe I'll just stop. And would anyone really? I mean, totally. yeah, they'd notice, but 
I could just stop. Maybe I should. And why not? You know, and then you realize like, no, you can't stop. You can't stop. You're alive. You know, you've got to do stuff. And that voice in your head, I mean, that guy's dangerous, you know, (laughs) they can weave all sorts of stories about, you know, how things aren't going right in your life. And it's not true, you know, but yeah, but we, we let that voice take up too much rent, I think a lot of the time. Yeah. And I mean, I guess that is kind of the point I was trying to make earlier about doing what feels good is things that feel good are the things that silence that voice and fucking silence that voice. You know yep. what I mean? Like, Get him out like of do the do the things that make you feel alive. That's right. Yeah. And that's ultimately that's how I know I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, because when we are in a studio and we're making something and it's starting to really click, I'm like, oh, it's this is my purpose. This is when I am actually fully happy. You know, so I got to do it more. Hey, yeah, do more, do more. <laughs> Never stop, please. Um, I think that's a perfect place for us to wrap it up, Andy. This is awesome. All right, that brings us to the end of episode 64 of the LSQ podcast. Thanks again to Andy Hull for that wonderful conversation. Manchester Orchestra have loads of U.S. dates coming up this fall and next year, so check their website for details. Their new album, The Million Masks of God, is excellent and out now. And the next episode of LSQ is with Lucy Dacus in a few more weeks. Goo Goo Dolls John Resnick after that. If you've got feedback or questions, you can reach me on Twitter at JennyLSQ. I'll talk to you next time.